HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit corin.com. Support comes from the Pennsylvania Hemp Summit, November 14th and 15th, convening hemp industry stakeholders to learn, connect, and grow. Details at pahempsummit.com. Hello, welcome to Japan Needs. I'm your host, Aki Kodema, a food writer, the director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from Brooklyn, New York. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every day in the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi, ramen, isakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is, is a still mystery for many people, and I try to demystify it in this program with my good guests. My guest today is Mike Satinova, who is a ramen expert based in Chicago. Ramen became a very popular dish outside of Japan in the last two decades or so, and these days you can find great ramen shops in many cities in the U.S. And Mike fell in love with ramen when he spent a year in Japan 12 years ago. And since then, his passion for the iconic Japanese national noodle dish has only deepened. And that is why his Reddit page has become the go-to place for serious ramen lovers. Go there and you'll be surprised by the quality and the quantity of well-organized practical information about how to make a great bowl of ramen in your own kitchen, even outside Japan. So today we'll discuss how Mike got into ramen, how he learned to make a great ramen back home in America, the importance of regional variations of ramen within Japan, tips to make ramen at home, and much, much more. But quickly before we start, Japanese is available on the Heritage Radio Network website, as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, whichever you listen to, and subscribe to Japan Needs. And please write a review. We really appreciate your feedback. Now, let's start a conversation with Mike Satinova. Hello, Mike. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so this is, I'm very excited uh, knowing how great you are. You are the um, ambassador of ramen to the world. So 
I definitely don't believe that, but I appreciate the compliment. <laughs> okay, so first of all, to get to know you, where are you from and what did you eat when you grew up? Uh, so, so I'm from Chicago, Illinois, or just the suburbs outside of, outside of Chicago, Illinois, but that's where I currently live. So I've grown up in the Midwest. Um, my family has uh, Jewish and Italian heritage, and that's predominantly what we ate. So I, it's not that I was eating ramen growing up. In fact, outside of the Maruchan instant noodles, I think I almost never really ate ramen. But I grew up eating a lot of pasta and noodles broadly because that's just the lexicon of the Italian-American palate, if you will. And actually, to a certain degree, the Jewish palate, too. If you go to like a, a Jewish deli, you'll often find like spaghetti. It's kind of interesting. Uh, so I've loved noodles for a long time. And that was just kind of a life thing. It wasn't that uh, it magically turned into ramen. It's just who I am as an individual. That has since the, the ramen thing is almost entirely separate through a confluence of a variety of different life events, I'd say. Mm, right. But I could connect Jewish um, items to ramen toppings like pashrami for chashu. So mm, maybe some connection mm, <laughs> between yeah, kind them. Kind of. I mean, and also like you could say like matzo ball soup, right? The kind of classic chicken soups that one grows up with in America also have deep kind of Jewish roots, as do they in uh, Italian roots. So like soup making similarly is not a, an atypical thing to experience, but I wouldn't say that most home cooks participate in that practice. Uh, you know, certainly my parents didn't at the time. Mm. The, the the growth of loving ramen is not really related to my heritage. In fact, I'd say it's probably because it felt very different from my heritage in a lot of ways as I started getting into it. Mm, interesting. All right. So, and then before you fell in love with ramen in Japan, you went to Japan as an exchange student and yes. uh, spent a year in Hokkaido, the, which is the northern island of Japan, from 2009 to 2010. So, why did you decide to spend a year in Japan in the first place? Yeah, that is a good question. So the short of it is I had been studying Japanese for a really long time. So I studied Japanese in high school for four years, and then I actually majored in Japanese in college. And I'm sure I have forgotten most of my Japanese. <laughs> it's not very good anymore. But at the time, it was pretty decent. And I was very – I was studying Japanese because I thought Japan was just a fascinating place. I think that – Culturally, it felt very similar, but also distinctly different from what I had been growing up with in terms of ideas like collectivism versus individualism and kind of these ideas of, um, you know, uh, unification and, and you know, face saving, which were ideas that I had not experienced very much in America while simultaneously also dealing with things like harmony, but also being a country that is very developed and very, you know, organized and very much a wealthy nation. So it, it resonated on multiple levels for me in both its differences and its similarities. And so studying the language was the way to try and get more deeper into the, the culture of it, really. And I feel that's pretty true for most places, right? If you go traveling, it can sometimes feel a little hard to get the, the real experience if you don't know the language. And I certainly felt that way in Japan. So I was studying the language as a mechanism to learn more about Japan as a country. And that culminated in studying abroad there. Because again, it's hard to really understand a culture without living in it. It's very easy and very fundamental to see a culture and recognize its kind of um, 
its difference is, but to experience it is a completely separate thing. So I just noticed that I had to do that if I really wanted to feel like I understood it at all. And that's, yeah, so I lived in Japan. Um, Hokkaido was just the program that was available. It wasn't like I picked it because I was so fascinated with Hokkaido. I knew nothing about Hokkaido before living there, but that's ultimately where I got placed. Mm, I think there's a destiny because if you didn't go to Hokkaido, probably you would not be so into ramen. So I think that's probably true. I mean, I liked ramen. Like at that stage, I had eaten ramen before, but as like a person who enjoyed food. Do you know what I mean? And I have a long connection with cooking and food broadly in my life. So it wasn't unreasonable to be into particular food, but I just liked all Japanese food. I thought Japanese food broadly was just really delicious. So yeah, I was like going to Japan, just being like excited to eat anywhere. You know? mm, right. right. But how, what's the, you know, I'm sure there are a couple moments or the very moment that you got into ramen uh, when you went to Hokkaido. So do you have any specific reason you, you got into ramen? Well, Hokkaido is definitely one of the big centers of ramen in Japan, in, in part because of this kind of growth of miso ramen, which emerges from a Hokkaido. Um, that was just coincidence, obviously, for me. And it didn't really start clicking for me until I started tasting the kind of Zenith-style bowls that were coming out of this region. I think that most people who, uh, uh, I don't want to say study ramen, but I guess people who are aficionados of ramen will say that Tokyo is probably the epicenter of ramen's growth over the last 20 to 30 years. But there are other really, really important uh, regions or cities even that have kind of created um, and built up the culture of ramen in the country of Japan, and Hokkaido is one of them, specifically Sapporo. Mm -hmm. Although some people would say Asaikawa, some people would say Hakodate, like there's lots of sub-genres of the dish. Mm -hmm. For me, the reason that I got into it was because it felt like a truly authentic experience of the region. And as I have kind of alluded to, I really, really wanted that as part of my time there. I kind of felt like inherently a gaikokujin, an outside foreign person. And I was looking for and craving these authentic Japanese experiences. And there's not a lot more authentic than getting a bowl of ramen, especially if you've had a few to drink or you've had a long day and you're just quickly trying to get some food before you go out. Mm -hmm. And so those experiences became very tied to the sensation of experiencing Japan broadly. That is, I was going to a shop and I was only non-Japanese person there and the reason that people were going there was because they wanted to eat not because they wanted to be seen or they wanted to showcase themselves in some particular way so it had <laughs> this level of authenticity that I really liked and with that also became the fact that it was just delicious it's like so good I mean, it's just like outrageously good mm. uh, and once you have a bowl of ramen that's just crazy good it's just kind of like that click of like this is a thing that people in Sapporo eat and it's delicious, I need to know more about it. And it just like kind of spurred this quest for me. So I actually at one point uh, while studying abroad did kind of an independent study where I was touring all these different ramen shops. I think I went to something like maybe 60 ramen shops in a semester. And wow. I interviewed a bunch of different owners and tried to get them to like talk to me and give me advice. And it's funny, I was just looking at like, I took like some video of some of these. And so there's like somewhere deep in like one of my uh, one of my external hard drives is video of this shop called Ajino Sanpei, which is actually the inventor of miso ramen. They invent miso ramen in the mid fifties. And they allowed me to come in and like videotape a bunch of the process and like the way things are done. And 
I was just all about it at that point. At that point, it felt like I was uncovering something that no one was talking about in the United States, right? Like there was, there were, no one was saying like, this is Hokkaido and this is like a food that people eat. They're just like, Hokkaido has miso ramen. If you go there for a day, maybe you can eat it. And that was kind of the extent of the dialogue. So it just was kind of addictive. It was just really addictive. And it was delicious and it was fun and it was pretty low effort, frankly. Like, mm. Well, it depends there. on which level you're looking for, but you really yeah. achieved yeah. making it right. looking easy. Um, right. But, you know, um, it was a very intense studying of ramen for you in Hokkaido, but then you have to come back in a year. So how did you study making ramen? It's kind of like, you know, advanced your knowledge and skills to make great ramen back home in America. Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, when I came back, there was not very much. In 2010, when I came back, there were maybe, there was like a recipe on Serious Eats, and there was a recipe on a couple other blogs, and there was the Momofuku cookbook. And that was basically the extent of English writing in it. And the Japanese writing was similarly lacking. So this is at a point in my ramen career where I didn't even know what all the components of ramen right? I, you can go out and eat ramen every day for a year and still not know how it's made, right? You just, the bowl is put in front of you and you eat it. So you don't have to know much about the production element of it. But upon coming back, I was going from eating it all the time to never eating it. And I felt like if I was ever going to eat ramen again, especially where I was living at the time, I had to make it. I didn't have an alternative. So because of the lack of resources, I kind of was just trying to find bits and pieces about it. First, identifying what the components of ramen are. And there are five. And you have to know them in order to make ramen. And it took a while for me to figure this out because the information was not readily available. So, you know, you have to know how to make soup. You have to know how to make tai, which is the seasoning element of the soup that gives it its flavor and salinity and potentially umami. You have to learn how to make noodles, obviously, because you can't buy noodles very readily available, especially where I was living. You have to learn all the different toppings. And then you have to learn what the oil that goes on ramen is, which is often super untalked about, especially in the Western world up until recently. And knowing those five components took a while because, again, there wasn't a lot of information and the information that did exist didn't discuss them in detail. Most of these recipes that I'll talk about don't mention Thai as an example. But if you go to a ramen shop in Japan, they almost always use Thai. It's extremely rare that they don't. They need this seasoning component in the soup. And so learning those components became part of the process. First, by just messing it up over and over and over again. I tell people as a joke that I made bad ramen for the first six years of my life. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, and I, but if you look at the photos of the ramen that I was making in those first six years, I think you'd probably agree. Like, the, I just was missing fundamental understanding of what the dish was. And that was because the information wasn't there, wasn't readily available wasn't being written about it wasn't in english if it was in japanese it was very surface level you know chefs in japan are often quite secretive about their methodology and so they're not as eager and willing to share so i just kind of had to try and make a lot of mistakes and it took a while it took like six plus years before i got anywhere realistically mm. right so you really said something as a keyword so you said what the dish is about which is a very profound kind of philosophical question. So uh, to me, your approach to ramen, it's very analytical. And that's mm -hmm. like your deja vu, <laughs> hyper research-based mindset. Yeah. And uh, I really admire because I think, you know, having a tradition in a country like me, I didn't think of that 
I'm trying to explain what it is. I didn't want to deconstruct. I mean, I didn't have to understand what the nature of Brahman is. It's like, you know, it, you right. grew up with it. But your analytical uh, view to Brahman is really advancing the whole industry. And it's more to be able to share it, uh, to be by everybody in the world because your, you know, profound knowledge and uh, cumulative records as well. So mm-hmm. what do you mean by what this is about, which you didn't understand before and then you understand? There's a, it's a complex and layered answer to that question. The first is, even when you're eating it, it's easy to not understand the historical implications of this dish. And in fact, I didn't really know much about it. Even in Hokkaido, I knew some of the lineage of some of these famous shops, but certainly not ramen broadly as a dish until, uh, you know, maybe five or six years ago when a couple books that are kind of relevant to the history of ramen got published in English. Those are uh, Slurp, uh, A Social and Culinary History of Ramen, and there's another book, which is, uh, I think it's The Untold History of Ramen. There's two books that came out, and maybe after the call, I'll tell you what they are. But these they are these historical books that emerged that um, kind of talk about the history of the dish. And what you understand very quickly is that this dish is rooted in a combination of appropriation, Japanese cooks leveraging and adjusting Chinese uh, immigrant cooking to better suit the local palate, while also accommodating for a lot of post-war suffering. That is, ramen doesn't really get popular until after World War II, where Japan is extremely depleted and is receiving a lot of wheat uh, from the United States, and they don't have a strong enough break- baking culture, so they need to figure out ways to use this kind of unrefined, poor-quality wheat, frankly. And so one of the ways they do this is through ramen, uh, the production of a uh, Chinese noodles. And knowing that history is important to understanding the dish for a couple of reasons. One, this dish is not a luxurious dish, even though it's often made at a very high level. In fact, in Japan now, you'll often hear people talk about the ten, the, the thousand yen ceiling, which is, it's really hard to sell a bowl of ramen for more than a thousand yen in Japan. And that's, there's a reason for that, because culturally, this thing is charged with ideas of scarcity and thing and, and, you know, and, and, and just general, you know, um, inexpensiveness. And you have to know that if you're going to make the dish, because the idea of making the dish with $50 of ingredients per bowl is like funny and interesting, but it also kind of doesn't understand what the dish is supposed to be, which is a humble noodle soup. The second component is understanding just broadly how Japanese cooking emerges in, uh, in, in, in this dish specifically. So it's obviously an appropriation of Chinese technique and Chinese methodology in that these kind of hand-pulled or Chinese noodle soups emerge in the early 1900s in Japan as Chinese immigrants live there, but it doesn't really become Japanese until adding things like soy sauce and reducing and adding things like dried fish products that are more palatable to the Japanese palate. And so you have to know what those ingredients are and why Japanese people like them to understand why they work in the dish. In particular, there's a lot about umami that becomes more prevalent, right? Japanese cooking fixes a lot on umami in part because for a long time, Japanese cooking was very vegetarian and it needed incredible seasoning in order to be palatable to people. Uh, You know, so there's this like long history of like figuring out how to optimize the seasoning in Japanese cooking. And this is extremely relevant in ramen to the point now where it's like, it's so over-optimized that people talk about all these crazy 
pieces and language of in very specific technical language, which I'm <laughs> sure I can get into. But the point is just like, once you start understanding that cultural background, you can make better ramen because your knowledge of the dish is not just it's these five ingredients, but it's also why do they all work together? And where did they come from? Why are they getting used? So as an example, in Hokkaido, the classic story is, uh, you know, in the 50s where miso ramen was invented, the, some guy asked for noodles in his tonjiru, his pork miso soup, basically. And the cook happened to have some chukasoba, some Chinese noodles lying around, so he plopped them in. That's the story, at least. But the reason it becomes popular is probably more because Hokkaido is really cold, and the restaurant at the time is cooking a lot of things in lard, which kind of gives the, the final tonju like a really thick cap of fat and keeps it really hot, and it's really comforting. And it kind of kicks off. And it also kicks off because no one else is doing this. So when guidebooks start writing about it in the 70s, it seems really novel and really interesting for the region. And Japan really likes that kind of hyper-regionalization of cooking. I'm sure, I, I'm sure, Akiko, you know this already, but for those listening, that's a very common cultural affectation in Japan. So when you recognize that, you understand why this dish emerged in Hokkaido. It's a combination of a lot of different factors. There's a post-war element. There is a weather and climate element. There is an ingredient element. There is a serendipity element. And there's also just the fact that Hokkaido has a decent number of Chinese immigrants living in that region at the time. So there's like a lot of unique factors that you have to understand before you start making the dish. It's important in my opinion too. And part of it is important to me because I'm a white guy. I'm not Japanese. So I felt like as I made ramen more and more, I needed to do my due diligence and understanding what this thing was. Mm. That was very Well, important. actually, but you were always demystifying the traditional cuisine, which probably Japanese people would never thought of, which is very beneficial to the whole industry of ramen. So it's like Japanese sake, like people pay attention and great mm. sake. Sommeliers in this country, like, whoa, analyzing and mm -hmm. all the, like wine style flavor. Analysis is like, wow, it's just something very cool. And then the Japanese sake becoming more popular domestically too. Mm -hmm. So, right. So, um, yeah. So I, I hope you are working your own book about ramen. <laughs> but <laughs> before that, you studied the and sharing your knowledge of how to make a great ramen on Reddit right. in, uh, I think, 2013. So could you describe what our listeners can find on your Reddit community pages? Because well, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know if I'd really call it. It's not really my community. Reddit is just an Oh, yeah, but website. you have two pages, right? Like your yeah, ramen I mean, road and, and the community yeah. page as well. So there's, you know, there's uh, in the ramen subreddit, which is a pretty large subreddit. They're just a huge community, something like 400,000 people who are subscribed to this community who post various photos of ramen. Sometimes they're instant noodles. Sometimes they are, you know, bowls that they ate at a restaurant. Sometimes they're homemade from scratch ones and all in between. And the idea is just to unify people centrally in an English-speaking community that talks about ramen from the most basic level to the most sophisticated level and all in between. That is a lofty goal. And when I joined, there were only about 15,000 people. So it's definitely grown pretty tremendously. Um, part of the reason I think it grew is because I started posting all the stuff that I was doing in that community. And at the time, not many people were making ramen at home. Like it was pretty rare because ramen is hard. Like ramen is really difficult <laughs> to make. Like it's not easy. So 
you know, I posted there because I just didn't know anything. And I just felt like maybe somebody would appreciate this because I didn't know anything. So if I learned something, maybe somebody else could learn something. And mm. the reception was positive enough that it kind of just kept pushing me to do more and more of it. But it's not really my community. It's just a community that I've been a contributor to for a while now. Right. But your um, page, I should have mentioned this one first, but the Roman underscore words, this is really deep packed <laughs> place. Yeah, yeah. So, so you get ridiculously deep and useful, practical information. If you just go post on Reddit page, uh, you know, the Roman board. This I post there and I also post on Instagram. And you mentioned a book. I actually do have a free ebook out now with all of this stuff in it. Ooh. It's about... It's about 120 pages right now, maybe more. I wrote it with my brother two years ago, although it's taken several years to finalize, right? Because a lot of it was aggregating all this information and citing it appropriately and getting uh, all the content ready. But that's also linked in the ramen subreddit. So if folks are interested in learning how to make ramen, I typically direct them to that free ebook. It's free. It's a Google Doc. Anybody can access it. You don't need any special tools or equipment to access it. You don't need any special logins to access it. You don't even need to pay for it. It's totally free. The goal is just to democratize this a little bit. Because again, when I started, nobody knew anything about ramen. <laughs> it was like that no one was talking about how to make ramen. And it kind of was frustrating to me. And it didn't make sense for other people have to go through that long, arduous process of needing to figure it out. There are certain basic blocks of the dish that anybody can learn and, and start with that it would just catapult your knowledge now. And, you know, I don't want to take, uh, you know, I don't want to pretend like I'm some magical person who suddenly gave everybody credit, but I would definitely say that new ramen cooks have a huge leg up and they often get very good very quickly way better than me <laughs> because they don't have to deal with the muck and the mire of sifting through the semi-information, if you will. Do you know what I mean? Right. That's the pioneers suffering. Well, but at the same time, it's like, at the same time, it's like when you're a ramen chef, I don't think you should rest on your laurels. I think that to grow and to get better at cooking, you need to have other people teach you as well as teach other people. And so it was never a question of should I give people this information, right? It was never a question of should I, um, should I share this? It was just like, when am I going to do it? <laughs> because I was, you know, like it's what I owe. In a lot of ways, the reason anybody listens to me is because I shared. So it just kind of made sense. Right. Well, actually, I, I'm just, uh, you know, I just opened your 120-page Book, this is amazing. You've too bad you didn't make money out of this, but <laughs> it is amazing. It's available on Reddit. So, okay, uh, we'll take a quick break here, and when we come back, we'll dive into different types of regional ramen, um, like you just mentioned, and tips to make great bowl of ramen in your own kitchen. So, please stay with us. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan-Asian to American, and that is why they are located in New York City, 
where people from every country in the world come to eat. Koin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view the exquisitely designed tableware and the wireless natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services, from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Koin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit coin.com. Support comes from the Pennsylvania Hemp Summit. Join us for the Pennsylvania Hemp Summit trade show and reception at the Farm Show Complex in Harrisburg on November 14th and 15th. Connect with industry stakeholders and grow the industry together through our 2023 industry planning sessions, industry and legislature panel discussions, success story sharing, professional development workshops, and a research showcase. Register to attend or get involved by exhibiting or sponsoring. Details at pahempsummit.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Needs on HRN Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Akiko Tema, and my guest today is Mike Satinova, who is a ramen expert known as Ramen Lord on Reddit. So let's talk about ramen. So you mentioned earlier the key components of ramen. So for listeners who are not familiar with ramen, just briefly go through that main five components of ramen. Sure. Happy to do that. There are five, as you mentioned. Probably the one that everyone is going to know is going to be the noodle. That is a very specific kind of noodle. Uh, it's a yellow alkaline noodle that must contain some alkalining agent that is something that makes the pH alkaline as opposed to acidic, and that changes the structure. The Japanese government requires this in order for it to be called a ramen noodle. It must contain some amount of these things. It's typically called kansu. There's lots of different things that can go into it, but it must be an alkaline noodle. That's a ramen noodle. It's a ramen noodle. If it doesn't have a ramen noodle, it's not ramen. I'm sorry to my udon and soba and you know all these other <laughs> somen and all these other noodles from Japan. Those are not ramen. Ramen is its own kind of noodle dish. From there, there are four other components that you typically find in ramen, although even these are somewhat contested, and we can talk about that in a little bit. Probably the most obvious. Next one is soup. You, ramen is a noodle soup dish, so it needs some soup. But the kinds of soup can vary crazily. They can have lots of fish, lots of meat, lots of anything. But there needs to be a soup. And then you also need to season that soup with something because typically in ramen, the soup doesn't have any salt in it. It's just the meat and the fish and the vegetables or whatever cooked in water for a certain period of time to extract flavor. So you need a seasoning element to actually make it taste like something. If you've ever tasted a stock without salt, it tastes like nothing. And so typically in ramen, they use something called tare, which it loosely translates to like sauce, although even that's contestable. But it's this seasoning liquid typically that has uh, salt in it, of course, but it also has flavor, and sometimes it also has umami, kind of you know meaty, uh, savory qualities to it that boost the sensation of the soup. You need those two probably. Then, of course, you also need toppings. If you've ever had a bowl of ramen, most of the time it has some toppings. This isn't mandatory, but most of the time you've got some toppings, and those can vary from ones that are really common to more complex, niche, interesting ones, and all in between. And then lastly, but not necessarily unheard of, is aroma oil, uh, which is basically an oil that is an oil or fat that has been infused with different aromas to bring additional complexity to the bowl. And this one doesn't get talked about enough, in my opinion, but it is like a game changer for most ramen. It will take any bowl of ramen and just elevate it a little bit more. 
because it layers a flavor in a way that you might not additionally experience that flavor. So as an example, if I put garlic in a soup, there are um, kind of water-soluble flavor compounds that exit that garlic and enter that soup. But those flavor compounds are not necessarily the same as the fat-soluble flavor compounds that also exist in the garlic. And so if you cook garlic in a fat, that oil will additionally add that flavor of garlic in a way you're not experiencing in the baseline soup. And so it allows you to experience a particular ingredient or depending upon how you make the serum oil in a variety of ways through a layering effect in the soup where you have a flavor in one mechanism and a flavor in another mechanism. And so the oil itself becomes very, very important for kind of finalizing the dish. It is like the the, the cream on top, if you will, that makes the that takes your ramen from good to great, in my opinion. But that one is definitely the most uh, widespread and various in terms of how it's designed and how it's executed. Uh, sometimes the aroma oil, like in Hokkaido, is literally just lard. It's just lard. Like they just put lard in a wok. That's all it is. In other more sophisticated restaurants, that aroma oil can be very heavily steeped with a variety of ingredients at very specific temperatures to optimally extract those flavors. So like there's a there's a, a Tantan style restaurant in Sapporo called, uh, I think 165 Deno, which means 165 degrees Fahrenheit. And it's because they cook all of the ingredients in the aroma oil at 165 degrees for three hours. They call it that <laughs> after that restaurant. I don't know if that's actually optimal or not, but that's like the level that some of these chefs think about this dish in terms of how they uh, are trying to build and layer flavor for their customers. Mm, things are getting geekier and geekier because oh, yeah, ramen is... It gets <laughs> real crazy. It gets really crazy. Right. Yeah, it's just fun, right? Because ramen looks very simple, like comfort food, but, you know, that five elements, each of them really is... Um, kind of labor of love of each chef mm -hmm. and you really have to personalize it to make it perfect according to the chef's taste like you. So yeah, it's interesting. So let's talk about the uh, actual ramen. Uh, of course, with the examples of uh, Hokkaido ramen because mm -hmm. that's what you are specializing. So yeah, so the regional varieties are strong and interesting. Like you said earlier, it's called Dokotochi ramen like the local ramen. Right. So, and then, and you spend a year in the Sapporo city in Hokkaido. Mm -hmm. um, so Sapporo is famous for Sapporo ramen. So uh, to start, what is Sapporo ramen? So Sapporo ramen today is primarily miso ramen. Although any, because of the kind of globalized nature of ramen, you can find certain styles of any particular dish in any particular city that's making good quality ramen. But really, the, the style of ramen that puts Sapporo on the map is this miso ramen. It's invented in the mid-50s by this restaurant called Ajino Sampe. They essentially consolidate or collapse a pork and miso soup with a noodle dish, and it kind of generally, over time, becomes a ramen. So the lore goes. But there are multiple stages by which Sapporo's miso ramen evolves. This is just the initial kind of confluence, if you will. The second phase, as I call it often when I describe it, is this kind of evolution of just a dish into a kind of kodawari or fixated, more meticulous dish. And that emerges from these restaurants like Sumire or Junren, which are really thinking about how to make a miso ramen that is fitting with the local characteristic styles of the culture there. 
So Hokkaido is super cold. So they're adding a lot of lard and they're adding a lot of richness and a lot of pork to make the dish hearty and feel wholesome and complete. And they're also adding a lot of aromatics because the origins of the dish use woks. So they're incorporating that wok cooking technique while also making sure that the miso is cooked correctly. And then from those regions, you get more refinement. So most folks, if you ask them in Hokkaido, if you like Junin or Sumire, these kind of 70s, 80s shops, they'll say yes, but they'll admit that they're kind of old school. They feel less contemporary by composition. And that makes sense because they're like 50 plus years old, right? Um, the newer shops are maybe using more refined miso blends or they're making more sophisticated soups and thinking more specifically about the temperature control. They're using uh, you know, a specific wok technique to minimize, uh, you know, damage to the flavor profile of the miso because miso has these very volatile compounds. That if you cook it too long, it degrades. So there's lots of additional thought that gets put onto the dish towards the 90s and, and 2000s as part of a broader movement in Japan to modernize and contemporize uh, this dish ramen. So it stops being like just a junky food that's filling and starts becoming a more artisanal uh, kind of craft-oriented dish uh, about 20 or 30 years ago. But all of those happen just for miso in Hokkaido. Depending upon where you are in the country, that's different. It depends on where you are. And I am by no means a historian, so I'm not going to claim that I know all of the different ways that the dish has evolved, but you have definitely see this uh, in different regions as well. And fundamentally, though, when people say Sapporo ramen, they mean miso ramen. Like that is, those two are one and one, in my opinion. Right. Interesting. And um, yeah, and also, you know, Sapporo is Sapporo is the one city. But right. uh, for example, there is a Hakodate ramen, right. which is also in Hokkaido, and Asahikawa right. ramen, which is also in Hokkaido. So right. um, are they different from Sapporo? They are in like pretty notable ways, <laughs> which is <laughs> like the thing is, I don't know the history of, of Asahikawa ramen or Hakodate ramen specifically. You know that acai kawa ramen is like a tonkotsu shoyu, so it's a little creamy. It's got a, a very dark black soy sauce tie, so it's a little more savory. Uh, and it's got these interesting kind of thinner noodles in comparison to Sapporo, which has these curly yellow wavy noodles that were developed by a very specific manufacturer in the 50s. Hakodate ramen, uh, by contrast, being located on the coast, has a lot of seafood elements and typically has some more shio elements, soy, uh, salt elements. So it's it's less about the tare and more about the soup and the kind of seafood components that are being brought in. And that, you can argue, probably makes sense just given its location, its proximity to the coast. But you don't necessarily see this on other coastal cities in Japan. So it's kind of interesting that that's where it emerges. Again, some of this is because arguably these kind of lighter seafood soups are being consumed by immigrants, and so they become popular in the region. Uh, there's always this kind of confluence of who brought it and who started it first. It's always tougher to say. Like, <laughs> even the story of miso ramen is tough because it's like, is that really how, is that really what happened? Did this chef really do that accidentally where he combined a dish on a menu with another dish? Or was it, you know, I've heard similar stories where it was a very intentional choice because in post-war Japan, adding miso to things boosted the calorie content in a, in a relatively affordable manner. And so boosting calories made sense for consumers because they were living in a kind of impoverished time. So there's always this kind of like folk component to the stories here. We like these narratives about what started it and what didn't, but 
you will recognize the styles are very different, even in Hokkaido. I think, Akiko, your point is valid, that these three cities have very fundamentally different styles of ramen. It's not the only way that they make ramen these days, but certainly you do see these emerging trends uh, in, in local places that are different from one another. Hey, it must be interesting, right? You just visit each city in Hokkaido. You can probably spend at least a, a week. And yeah. yeah, and I heard there's a Muroran, that's another city in Hokkaido. They have mm-hmm. a curry, curry flavor. Yeah, Muroran <laughs> has the curry ramen, which I've been, I never actually got to try when I was living out there, but had heard about it. And it's that's a very interesting one too, because it's like, where did that come from? Where did the curry <laughs> come from? Like, right. Curry in itself obviously has, there's lots of Japanese curry, but that dish has similar kind of food ways that bring it into the country. How did that get smashed together with ramen in a way that's cohesive? You know, I don't know the, actually the history there, but you do see that a lot. You see that a lot with this dish in a way that often you don't see with other dishes in Japan, in my opinion, right? Like this kind of smashing of ideas together, or this this kind of uniqueness and diversity in approach uh, in a way that's obvious even to a layman who's only eaten a handful of ramens in their lifetime. Mm, right. Yeah. Like, well, that reminds me of, like, you know, the uh, long salt bread um, that's stuffed with Japanese fried noodles or mm-hmm. that's kind of like, why not? It's delicious. Right. <laughs> right. Yes. The, yes. The yakisoba pan. Always, right. uh, always a treat. Right. Okay. So, um, so that's the Japanese local regional variations, but you know, um, if you have to cook ramen in Japan, what's the most challenging part of making ramen? Hands down, hands, that easy question, hands down the noodles, the noodles are brutal. And there, you know, even ramen shops rarely make the noodles in Japan. In fact, I would argue that the vast majority of ramen shops in Japan are buying noodles. Just like if you were a burger shop, you'd probably buy the bun. You wouldn't bake the bun. And it's because they require lots of specific technology to make consistently and a lot of labor to make consistently. So most folks are just buying the noodles. I'm not saying that uh, you need to buy the noodles. You can make really delicious ramen at home. But every time a person is going down this quest to make ramen for the first time at their house, I highly recommend they buy the noodles that they can. There are a variety of manufacturers, even in the United States now, who make great noodles that are fairly easy to get. My favorite is Sun Noodle. They make a great product. And you can find them at most Asian grocery stores. And it will just save you a lot of headache. And the quality will be excellent. And it's just very difficult to make a ramen noodle. There are a variety of reasons why this is. For one, the dough is very low in water content. To give you a context, typically a dough that you'd work with in your house would be anywhere from 50 to 70% in hydration. And that number corresponds to the amount of water you add per certain amount of flour. So if I have 100 grams of flour, a 60% hydration dough is 60 grams of water, right? It's just the ratio between the water and the flour. A ramen dough is like 30 to 38 to 40% hydration, sometimes less, sometimes more. It's just hard to work with. It doesn't have a lot of water, so it doesn't stick together very easily. It's crumbly and it's dry and it's super brittle and it's super firm. So using making that dough at home is very difficult. In addition, you need some specialized equipment often to make it, like a pasta machine or something to roll out the dough because doing it by hand is almost impossible. You just don't have the strength to push together that crumbly dough by yourself. It's very, very difficult. And so it's just tough. It's just really tough. 
it's just a difficult part of the process. I would say that in addition, it's not a component that people have a lot of experience with. So you're going to be learning how to do it and what to expect while you're making it simultaneously. Conversely, most people have heard about how to make stock. So like if you give them the fundamental ideas about it, it's not too difficult to get them to make a soup as long as they understand kind of what they're going towards. And similarly, most people have braised stuff or made a pot roast before. So certain components like chashu are not unheard of or strange for people to make, and they're relatively approachable. It's very weird to make noodles at home. People just don't do that here. And they definitely don't make ramen noodles very often. So it's just tough. <laughs> That's just the one part that I recommend people avoid if they're going to start. Again, I've made some great noodles at home, but I wouldn't say that a newbie should begin on that quest. <laughs> to me, you've got four other components that you can focus on and nail before you start deviating. Do you know what I mean? And so that's usually the advice I give people. If you want to make ramen, awesome. Make it easier on yourself because you've got a lot of work ahead of you and buy the noodle. You will thank me later because you will buy a great noodle and you will not feel the pain of having to make it last minute. So that's definitely the first, that's, it's the hardest and it's the first piece of advice I give folks. Buy okay. the noodle. Yes. So, uh, yeah, and actually Ken Uki, Ken Shouki of Sun Noodles came to this show a while ago. And, uh, yeah, it just sounds like, it's almost like making Japanese perfect shokpan, which is Japanese fluffy mm -hmm. bread. Mm -hmm. And you really have to be a master of baking to make it. So, yeah, so noodle purchase. But uh, for listeners uh, who are interested in cooking a nice bowl of ramen, not, not the noodles. So mm -hmm. what do they need? Like, what's the equipment, where to start, what kind of soup they should start trying, and maybe you can uh, lead us to your Reddit page if you want to. Where shall we start? Yeah, so that is a good question because it really is contingent. I would say it doesn't matter which one you start with, but that you start with one. And what I mean is you should identify the kind of ramen you want to make and get ready to have to make it a couple times to get used to the process. So often folks want to make tonkotsu. It's a very popular style in the United States. It's this creamy, white, highly emulsified soup with lots of pork fat and pork flavor, and it's got it's delicious. I totally get it. Rather than hoping you'll nail it on the first time, because it's quite complicated, except that the first time you'll get maybe 60% of the way there, 70% of the way there, and you'll try it a couple times and learn from your mistakes. But try the same dish a couple times, much like it is... You know, I think that unfortunately, and home cooks often have this expectation that they're going to try a recipe one time and just it'll be perfect and they'll never have to refine it or get better at it or learn anything. And the reality is that ramen is complicated and you have to learn the process a little bit. And so you should expect to a certain degree that the first time you make it, it won't be perfect. But rather than trying to make a different style of ramen the next time, it's better to try and make it again and see how you can refine it a little bit, which all the more reason why you should buy noodles then, right? Because Imagine having to also do that part of the process multiple times. So I usually recommend folks make a recipe. They make a style and they really try and figure out what that is they like about that style. And then once they feel like they have a certain grasp of the, the method, they can deviate and start working on other things. So it doesn't matter which one. If you love Tokyo Shoyu, go for Tokyo Shoyu. If you love uh, Hakodate Shio, go for Hakodate Shio. If you love Tonkotsu from Hakata, Go over tonkotsu from Hakata, but stick with it until you feel like you're gonna, you've gotten a good grasp of the approach before you start making other ones. Mm, so maybe you have, you should have a good memory of the taste that you want to reach. It's like a specific goal. Yeah, 
And that's a great point too, because I definitely often get comments from potential cooks who are like, I've never had ramen before. I want to make it. And it's like, it's hard to make it if you don't know what you're aiming for, right? Like that's tough. Ideally you have a goal in mind, right? You're going to make a dish that is very complicated, has like at a minimum, you are making four different dishes really, because you're making an oil, you're making a topping, you're making a soup, you're making a tare. You have four things to make. So ideally you have a goal of what you're looking for that thing to taste like. If you don't, it's going to be harder, right? You don't really know what you're aiming for, but that's kind of like whenever you make a dish from a recipe in general. So hopefully you have a sense of what you're looking for first, and then you can adjust and, and refine as needed, but you need to start somewhere. And the goal is just to start with a particular recipe and a particular methodology and stick with that and then refine it until you feel comfortable. And be open to the fact that it's going to take a while. It's not going to be, this isn't like getting a recipe for pancakes and then you just, it's just done and you don't have to worry about it again. There's a lot of complexity and a lot of nuance and a lot of techniques that people are not used to doing. Like tonkotsu is a great example of this because tonkotsu follows a methodology in cooking soup that is highly different from every other soup technique you'll find in the Western world. You know, if you make uh, a stock using classic French technique, the bones are roasted, they're cooked at very low simmer with all the vegetables, and then very gently strained. You don't want to do any of that stuff in tonkotsu. In tonkotsu, you want to blanch, you want to boil it forever at a very high heat until it is super emulsified and white, and you want to add the aromatics very closely to the end if you're adding them at all, because otherwise they will oxidize due to the rapid, crazy agitation they experience in the pot. So you're constantly like, you have to relearn some stuff if you're going to make this dish. So that's all the more reason why it's important to find a style you want to learn and go from there. And accept that, just accept in your mind that you're making a style of ramen. Ramen is incredibly complicated. There's so many different styles. There are hundreds of different ways to make this dish. Find one that you like and pursue that one first before you go to another one. Right. Okay. So it sounds like never ending pursuit and uh, speaking well, of. It's uh, not though, because like, I think most people know which one they like first. Okay. Right? But and you, you know, learn to, a lot. Right. But you know, like, um, I think you know, what I'm trying to say is like, sounds like a very addictive um, process. Like <laughs> there's so many things you can play with and just the balance of the four elements uh, mm -hmm. except for that noodle, assuming you're not making it yet. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it sounds like I feel like I'm making ramen thanks to you <laughs> right now. <laughs> right. And, you know, you've been really having fun uh, doing a lot of stuff. And then I heard that you had a fun pop-up in Chicago on October 27th with uh, Korean-American restaurant Perilla and uh, Alex I News, uh, the mm -hmm. French culinary YouTube star. Well, I'm mm -hmm. a big fan of his, actually. Yeah. Uh, so... How did it happen and what did you make and how did it go? So obviously this is pretty late in my ramen career, right? It's the most recent pop-up I've done. So I, I, the approach to this is always going to be a little different than some of my earlier ones, but I'll digress. It started with Alex reaching out to me a couple months ago. He wanted to learn how to make ramen in a restaurant setting, which is fundamentally quite different than making it at home, uh, you know, it's just classic, right? You're making things in volume, so things change, right? When you make a dish in a small scale for four people, it's very different than making it for 100 people. That's just the nature of cooking, if it will. And he wanted to see what that was like. So I, of course, was game. We had been talking for several years, just back and forth about ramen occasionally, and I was interested in helping him out and also getting to meet him. So 
I found um, my friends at Perilla were eager to host him and we were kind of off to the races. Um, designing the dish was complicated because initially I didn't really, perhaps for my own error, realize that Alex wanted to be involved in the process. I kind of thought he just wanted to jump in and see what it was like. And I was wrong. So initially, it was just brainstorming with Perilla what kind of dishes we could make that would incorporate Korean elements to Japanese ramen without it feeling like it wasn't ramen. And this is actually a very, very, very tough thing to nail because it is easy to just put ramen noodles in something, right? You can have any soup and put ramen noodles in it and technically call it ramen. But does it really feel like ramen is the fundamental question you have to answer, and the further you deviate from certain kind of stereotypical or idealized flavors in the dish, the less it feels like ramen, the more it feels like some weird Frankenstein noodle dish. And so talking to the Perilla guys, they were very collaborative in helping us figure out like, how is this going to be ramen while still incorporating Korean ideas? Once we had a baseline there, I pitched it to Alex and he further incorporated some of these French ideas and some of them made more sense than others and we kind of refined and refined and refined until we got to a place where we kind of had these two dishes. One was a Korean dish, one was a French inspired dish. And I think they both worked pretty well. I guess I got kind of lucky, frankly. <laughs> but I think also part of it is like to my, like if there's one thing I really care about, it's like representing this dish in a way that makes sense and still conveys the idea of ramen that to me is like really really important i think it's very easy to just toss ramen noodles into something that's like easy but it also is thoughtless and doesn't understand what the dish really is and understand where the dish is coming from in a way that is meaningful and so whenever i am designing a new dish as an example i, I just came up with one last week it take i spend a lot of mental energy thinking about how to do this in a way that doesn't detach it from what ramen really is, that it still feels like ramen when you're eating it, that it still tastes like ramen while you're eating it, that the components are very cohesive. We spend a lot and a lot and a lot of time doing that. It's not hodgepodge together. And that's why I think ultimately the dish was successful is because it was put together in a thoughtful and composed way. But it took a while to get there. I mean, we started talking about this over a month before the event. Like it, it took over, it took many weeks to kind of figure this out. And there's a lot of refinement, a lot of like testing it out. And you know, we try this thing and, you know, I made several iterations of the noodles before we finalized the noodle. Just lots of like expecting the fact that refinement is required in your work when you're developing something new. Mm. Well, I saw actually the picture and uh, the description was also the, the first ball, that's Korean inspired one, uh, mm -hmm. the perilla seeds, that's the Korean, you know, the shiso, and the bipon soup, cream and mm -hmm. white in color with notable contrast from Korean chili crisp for yes. good heat and yes. nutty perilla for complexity. That's like, I want to eat that right now. Yeah. <laughs> and the other French one is butter, beef, miso, incorporates French and Japanese influence with a nutty richness round out with caramelized onion. Like, amazing. Mm -hmm. So I hope you can do it again, maybe somewhere in New York too. Um, but, you know, the same inspiration, I saw your Instagram post, which is, I think I saw it yesterday. So mm -hmm. that's the uh, Italian ramen. Yes. Uh, this, you know, I, I really think it that sounds like fusion-y, but I really totally thought it was making sense. It's the advancement of how, how you can push the envelope of ramen. So maybe you can tell us about that. I wouldn't <laughs> even call it fusion-y. Like, in fact, if I didn't overtly describe this dish as being heavily influenced by Italy, I don't think a lot of people would have noticed fundamentally. 
the tweaks mm. and the changes to it were very subtle. So for those listening who probably aren't familiar, I made this kind of salt-based ramen that was loosely inspired by tortellini and brodo, which is a dish from Emilio Romagna that includes tortellini or little small dumplings about like a centimeter big that are filled with mortadella and pork and prosciutto di parma, these kind of classic Emilio Romagna ingredients. And they're served in a very simple chicken and beef soup. And I kind of like a couple of these components. The first is I like the idea of using a spiced pork and I like the idea of including chicken and beef in a soup, which is kind of unorthodox in ramen. But I wanted it to still feel like ramen. It has to feel like ramen. It is ramen. It must be ramen. So how can I develop this dish in a way that doesn't suddenly turn into an Italian soup that just happens to have ramen noodles in it? And it just took a lot of like, figuring out where to push it, where not to push it. So like the wand, you know, instead of using a tortellini, we use a wonton, right? A wonton man is a very classic iteration of ramen noodles, particularly popular in Tokyo. Again, heavily Chinese influenced, but the wontons are distinctly Japanese in style in terms of like the skin texture. And so we lean into that a little bit. The fat is using uh, seabra or back fat or pork fat. That's a very classic Japanese ingredient in ramen, especially emerges in places like Onomichi and Hiroshima. You see this ingredient very classically in certain styles in Japan. And I also think it's just delicious. So it was like made sense. Mm. So how are you balancing like the more orthodox, traditional, classic methodologies with newer ideas like filling the wonton with prosciutto di parma, which is what <laughs> I end up doing. It's kind of weird, but it gives it a sort of like interesting, nutty, uh, I don't want to say fermented, but it kind of gives you that quality that you only get from those products. Or similarly, using chicken and beef, a rather unorthodox combination. Uh, but in this case, you kind of are adding an additional layer of umami and flavor that you wouldn't get with just chicken alone. And so it allows you to adjust the flavor in a way that's unique and interesting without it seeming like when you're eating this bowl, this is not ramen. And so it was just like a confluence of those ideas. And that's always how I'm thinking about these new dishes. I don't want to just be like, this is a ramen where I, you know, I made a, I made a ramen that's like pozole and I just made pozole soup and then I put ramen noodles in it. To me, that is not, that's not enough. It doesn't, it doesn't understand the dish further enough. You have to do more work to make this thing feel like ramen. So I almost feel like it's a little bit of a misnomer to call it Italian ramen. I say that on my post tongue in cheek. It's really like a shio that has interesting Italian elements in it. Right. Well, actually, though, you said earlier ramen is about kind of umami, right? So mm -hmm. when I saw this, this is the combination of umami. Like yeah. you know, Italian and Japanese are very common in the sense that umami is always foundational. And yes. this is the bomb of umami and i mm -hmm. i wish i could just eat it <laughs> so that's a good point it, it's a good point you're right though that like both of those cultures have really harnessed umami albeit in very different ways right like uh you know in japan umami often is through these aqueous products like dashi right dashi is very foundational to the cooking but also through these kind of soy fermentation projects like miso and soy sauce in Italy, it's also through fermentation and things like uh, fermented meats or through Parmesan or other long fermented cheeses, but it's also through certain ingredients like mushrooms and tomatoes, which are very common in, in the cuisine as well, right? So, and that's also a misnomer because without getting too much into Italian cuisine, I am half Italian, so it kind of comes up. 
but you know, it depends on the region that you're in, in in Italy, you know, in the North of Italy, meat is much more productive because the North is historically more rich, more wealthy. And so meat is where the umami comes from. You kind of have these natural umami ingredients, obviously in meat, because meat has uh, the things that comprise umami. And in the South, it comes from more vegetables and more non, uh, non wealthy oriented things, things that take more time, so to speak, or things that are ingredients in themselves. And right. it's interesting, you see this in Japan to a certain degree, too, right? Like, uh, the most elegant cooking in Japan often is highly prizing the ingredient in terms of its own natural umami. And as you transcend, you're thinking about how to transform the existing ingredients you have to develop the umami and all in between. There's lots of ways that people approach the dish. But the two are similar and yet divided in terms of how they approach uh, umami. But it's a great point. I hadn't even thought of that. To be <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I mean, well, you have unlimited possibilities to develop recipes. So what, what are your plans and dreams? Plans and dreams. Well, yeah, that's a good question, isn't it? How much am I allowed to divulge? I guess <laughs> I, would love, I would love to open a ramen shop. You know, I think that that would be uh, good for me in terms of where I am in my life right good now. for everybody. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we'll see if people like it. Ramen making is hard, though, you know, and so it's figuring out the balance between becoming a true shokuni and a craftsman, if you will, who is super dedicated but has no time for anything else while also, you know, focusing on making the best ramen that you can. and trying to give that kind of nourishment and hospitality that a bowl as humble as ramen uh, provides for people, right? Like, I don't want to make expensive ramen. I don't want to make ramen that people can't afford. That's not really where I'm pivoted towards. I want to make interesting ramen. I want to make delicious ramen, but I don't want to alienate people with my food. So I'd love to open a ramen shop, but understanding fundamentally what that is, is going to take time for me. I'm in the process of it, trying to figure it out, but you know, these things take time. We'll see where mm. it goes. Well, keep me posted. And then when you do, you're going to come back and share everything. <laughs> <laughs> of so, course. Yeah. So where can we find your updates online and on social media? Yeah. So the best place to find me right now is on Instagram. Uh, the handle is ramen underscore underscore Lord. Uh, I'm also on Reddit. Uh, the username is ramen underscore Lord. Just one underscore there. Those are probably the two best places to find me. Uh, and I'm, I try to be responsive. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, this is so much. And I, I wish we had another hour at least. But uh, <laughs> please come back and, uh, yeah, good luck and keep me posted. Yeah. Thank you for having me. All right. So, well, thank you so much. And listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for show topics or guests, please contact us at japanese.com at heritageradionetwork.org or at kikokatayama.com. Japan News is a weekly program and it's always available at heritageradionetwork.org as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. Engineer is Amen Spenjan and thank you for listening. I will see you next week. Japan News is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.